0: escape pod 108 may 31st 2007 today's story king by bruce McAllister. hello and welcome to escape pod i'm steve ely Freshly back from Balticon, which I think may have been the best event yet for SF-friendly podcasters and fans. I won't try to do the full recap here, but here's what I discovered this time. I was actually not too enthusiastic about Balticon just before I went. That's because I was unexpectedly going alone. Minx was going to go but had another event conflict, and Anna was going to go until we learned that they had no child care. I was scheduled for so many panels and events that she'd have been stuck watching our two-year-old most of the time, and that would have been unfair and no fun for anyone. So I went on my own, with some foreboding, because the last time I went to a con truly alone, when I was younger, I'd found it a grim and intimidating place. Everybody knew everybody else, and I was too shy to approach anyone. That was tough. So I was really surprised when I had an incredible time at Balticon. It was nearly a perfect weekend— A lot of things help with that. One is that I'm not really shy anymore, or at least I can fake it well enough so that nobody would ever think I am. Another was having a schedule, things to participate in, ways to be part of the action. But the real difference was everyone else, having a community that I was going there to meet and hang out with. And because I was on my own, I didn't have to worry about anyone else's fun. I could live in the moment, and I did, and I was able to have a wonderful time with old friends and make new ones. It was a nearly perfect weekend. Thanks to the people I was with, I didn't really feel alone the entire weekend. I don't think this applies to just me. I think anyone who goes to a con alone can have this sort of fun if you decide to. At least fake not being shy, find things to get involved with, and look for a community who enjoys what you do. I mostly hung out with podcasters this time, and I've found that they're universally friendly and don't hesitate to open up to new people— But, you know, I've heard the same thing about costumers, and filkers, and gamers, and every other group at an SF convention. If you let yourself have fun, you'll find your people. And then you're not alone. Our story this week is about a more urgent reason to form a bond with someone different. We present the fourth of our 2007 Hugo nominees, Kin, by Bruce McAllister. Mr. McAllister lives in California... In addition to his extensive fiction credits, he's also a science writer, a screenwriter, a literary consultant and writing coach, and an agent finder for authors and screenplay writers. I'm guessing he's not shy either. This story first appeared in Asimov's in April 2006, and will be appearing again in Mr. McAllister's collection, The Girl Who Loved Animals and Other Stories, from Golden Griffin Press in October. So listen carefully, and don't be afraid to ask for help. It's story time. KIN by Bruce McAllister The alien and the boy, who was twelve, sat in the windowless room high above the city that afternoon. The boy talked, and the alien listened. The boy was ordinary, the genes of three continents in his features, his clothes cut in the style of all boys in the vast housing project called LAX. The alien was something else, awful to behold and though the boy knew it was rude, he did not look up as he talked. He wanted the alien to kill a man, he said. It was that simple. As the boy spoke, the alien sat upright and still on the one piece of furniture that could hold him. Eyes averted, the boy sat on the stool, the one by the terminal where he did his schoolwork each day. It made him uneasy that the alien was on his bed, though he understood why. It made him uneasy that the creature's strange knee was so near his in the tiny room, and he was glad when the creature, as if aware too, shifted its leg away. He did not have to look up to see the antelou's features. That one glance in the doorway had been enough, and it came back to him whether he wanted it to or not. It was not that he was scared, the boy told himself. It was just the idea— that such a thing could stand in a doorway built for humans in a human housing project where generations had been born and died and probably would forever. It did not seem possible. He wondered how it seemed to the anteloo. Closing his eyes, the boy could see the black synthetic skin the alien wore as protection against alien atmospheres. Under that suit, ropes of muscles and tendons coiled and uncoiled, rippling even when the alien was still. In the doorway, the long neck had not been extended, but he knew what it could do. When it telescoped forward, as it could instantly, the head tipped up in reflex and the jaws opened. Nor had the long talons, which the boy knew sat in the claws and even along the elbows and toes, been unsheathed. But he imagined them sheathing and unsheathing as he explained what he wanted, his eyes on the floor. When the alien finally spoke, the voice was inhuman. "'filtered through the translating mesh that covered half its face. "'The face came back, the tremendous skull, "'the immense eyes that could see so many kinds of light "'and make their way in nearly every kind of darkness. "'The heavy welts, the auxiliary gills inside the breathing globe, "'the dripping ducts below them, ready to release their jets of acid. "'Who is it that you wish to have killed?' the voice asked, "'and the boy almost looked up. It was only a voice, mechanical, snake-like, halting, he reminded himself. By itself, it could not kill him. A man named James Ortega Mambay, the boy answered. Why? The word hissed in the stale apartment air. He is going to kill my sister. You know this. How? I just do. The alien said nothing, and the boy heard the long, whispering pull of its lungs. Why, it said at last, did you think I would agree to it? The boy was slow to answer. Because you're a killer. The alien was again silent. So all Antaloo, the voice grated, are professional killers. Oh no, the boy said, looking up and trying not to look away. I mean... If not, then how? Did you choose me? The boy had walked up to the creature at the Great Fountain by the Cliffs of Monica, a landmark any visitor to Earth would take in, if only because it appeared on these sanctioned itineraries, and had it handed him a written message in crude anteluan. I know what you are and what you do, the message read. I need your services. LAX cell Eight Seven Three Two Three Four Five Two Six Five Seven at 1100 tomorrow morning. I am Kim. Antelou are well known for their skills, sir, the boy said respectfully. We've read about the No campaign, and what happened on Hagen II when your people were betrayed, and what one company of your mercenaries were able to do against the Garbettes. The boy paused. I had to give out ninety-eight notes, sir, before I found you. You were the only one who answered. The hideous head tilted while the long arms remained perfectly still, and the boy found he could not take his eyes from them. I see, the alien said. It was translator's idiom only. Seeing was not the same as understanding. The young human had done what the military and civilian intelligence services of five worlds had been unable to do, identify him as a professional, and it made the alien reflect. Why had he answered the message? Why had he taken it seriously? A human child had delivered it, after all. Was it that he had sensed no danger and simply followed professional reflex? Or something else? Somehow the boy had known he would. How? How much? The alien said, curious. Are you able to pay? I've got two hundred dollars, sir. How did you acquire them? I sold things, the boy said quickly. The rooms here were bare. Clearly, the boy had nothing to sell. He had stolen the money, the alien was sure. I can get more. I can— The alien made a sound that did not translate. The boy jumped. The alien was thinking of the 200,000 inters for the vengeance assassination on Hagen's third moon, the 100 kilobucks for the renegade contract on the asteroid called Wolf, and the mineral shares, pharmaceuticals, and space-lock craft, worth twice that, which he had in the end received for the three corporate kills on Alama Poi. What could $200 buy? Could it even buy a city rail ticket? That is not enough, the alien said. "'Of course,' it added, one arm twitching, then still again. "'You may have thought to record our discussion, "'and you may threaten to release the recording to Earth authorities "'if I do not do what you ask of me.'" The boy's pupils dilated then, like those of the human province official on Diodor, the one he had removed for the gray infra there. "'Oh, no!' the boy stammered. I wouldn't do that. The skin of his face had turned red, the alien saw. I didn't even think of it. Perhaps you should have, the alien said. The arm twitched again, and the boy saw that it was smaller than the others, crooked but strong. The boy nodded. Yes, he should have thought of that. Why? the alien asked then. Does a man named James Ortega Mambay Wish to kill your sister. When the boy was finished explaining, the alien stared at him again, and the boy grew uncomfortable. Then the creature rose, joints falling into place with popping and sucking sounds, legs locking to lift the heavy torso and head, the long arms snaking out as if with a life of their own. The boy was up and stepping back. Two hundred is not enough for a kill, the alien said and was gone, taking the same subterranean path out of the building which the boy had worked out for him. When the man named James Ortega Mambay stepped from the bullet elevator to the roof of the Federal Building, it was sunset and the end of another long but productive day at Popcon. In the sun's final rays the helipad glowed like a perfect little pond, not the chaos of the Pacific Ocean in the distance, and even the mugginess couldn't ruin the scene. It was, yes, the kind of weather one conventionally took one's jacket off in. But there was only one place to remove one's jacket with at least a modicum of dignity, and that was, of course, in the privacy of one's own fab home by the sea. To thwart convention, he was wearing his new triple-weave gauze jacket in the pattern called Summer Shimmer, handsome, odorless, waterproof, and cool. He would not remove it until he wished to. He was the last, as always, to leave the Bureau, and, as always, he felt the pride. There was nothing sweeter than being the last, than lifting off from the empty pad with the rotor blades singing over him and the setting sun below as he made his way in his urn solitude, away from the city up the coast to another, smaller helipad, and his fab home near Oxnard. He had worked hard for such sweetness, he reminded himself. His heli sat glowing in the sun's last light, part of the perfect scene, and he took his time walking to it. It was worth a paintbrush painting, or a digital one, or a multimedia poem. Perhaps he would make something to memorialize it this weekend, after the other members of his triad visited for their intimacy session. As he reached the pilot's side and the little door there, a shadow separated itself from the greater shadow cast by the craft, and he nearly screamed. The figure was tall, and at first he thought it was a costume, a joke played by a colleague, nothing worse. But as the figure stepped into the fading light, he saw what it was and nearly screamed again. He had seen such creatures in the newscasts, of course, and even at a distance at the shuttleport or at major tourist landmarks in the city, but never like this, so close. When it spoke, the voice was low and mechanical, the work of an Ipore mesh. You are, the alien said, James Ortega Mambay, Seventh District Supervisor, Bupop Khan. Ortega Mambay considered denying it, but did not. He knew the reputation of the Antelou as well as anyone did. He knew the uses to which his own race, not to mention the other four races mankind had met among the stars, had put them. The Antelou did not strike him as creatures one lied to without risk. Yes. I am I am Ortega Mambe my own name the antiloo said does not matter Ortega Mambe you know what i am what matters is that you have decreed the pregnancy of Linda Tokiyatsun illegal you have ordered the unborn female sibling of the boy Kim Tokiyatsun aborted is this true The alien waited. "'It may be,' the man said, fumbling. "'I certainly do not have all of our cases memorized. "'We do not process them by family name.' He stopped as he saw the absurdity of it. It was outrageous. "'I really do not see what business this is of yours,' he began. This is a Terran city, and an overpopulated one, in an overpopulated nation on an overpopulated planet that cannot afford to pay to move its burden off-world. We are faced with a problem, and one we are quite happy solving by ourselves. None of this can possibly be any of your affair, visitor. Do you have standing with your delegation in this city? I do not, the mesh answered. And it is, indeed, my affair, if the unborn female child... A family Toki dies. I do not know what you mean. She is to live, Ortega Mambay. Her brother wishes a sibling. He lives and schools in three small rooms while his parents work somewhere in the city. To him, the female child his mother carries is already born. He has great feeling for her. In the way of your kind, Ortega Mambé. This could not be happening, Ortega Mambé told himself. It was insane, and he could feel rising within him a rage he hadn't felt since his first job with the government. How dare you, he heard himself say. You are standing on the home planet of another race and ordering me, a federal official, to obey not only a child's wishes, but your own. You, a visitor, and one without official standing among your own kind. The child, the alien broke in, will not die. If she dies, I will do what I have been retained to do. The alien stepped then to the heli and the man's side, so close they were almost touching. The man did not back up. He would not be intimidated. He would not. The alien raised two of his forearms, and the man heard a snicking sound, then a pop, then another, and something caught in his throat as he watched talons longer and straighter than anything he had ever dreamed of slip one by one through the creature's black synth skin. Then, using these talons, the creature removed the door from the heli. One moment the alloy door was on its hinges, the next it was impaled on the talons which were, Ortega-Mambe saw now, so much stronger than any nail, bone, or other integument of Terran fauna. Giddily, he wondered what the creature possibly ate to make them so strong. "'Get into your vehicle, Ortega-Mambe,' the alien said. "'Proceed home. Sleep and think about what you must do to keep the female sibling alive.' Ortega Mambay could barely work his legs. He was trying to get into the heli, but couldn't, and for a terrible moment it occurred to him that the alien might try to help him in. But then he was in at last, hands flailing at the dashboard as he tried to do what he'd been asked to do. Think. The alien did not sit on the bed, but remained in the doorway. The boy did not have trouble looking at him this time. You know more about us, the alien said. Suddenly, severely, Then you wish me to understand. Is this not true? The boy did not answer. The creature's eyes, huge and cat-like, held his. Answer me, the alien said. When the boy finally spoke, he said only, Did you do it? The alien ignored him. Did you kill him? The boy said. Answer me, the alien repeated perfectly still. Yes, the boy said, looking away at last. How? the alien asked. The boy did not answer. There was, the alien could see, defeat in the way the boy sat on the stool. You will answer me, or I will damage this room. The boy did nothing for a moment, then got up and moved slowly to the terminal where he studied each day. ''I've done a lot of work on your star,'' the boy said. There was little energy in his voice now. ''It is more than that,'' the alien said. ''Yes. I've studied Antelouin history.'' The boy paused, and the alien felt the energy rise a little. ''For school, I mean.'' There was feeling again, a little, to the boy's voice. The boy hit the keyboard once, then twice, and the screen flickered to life. The alien saw a map of the northern hemisphere of Antelou, the trade routes of the ancient Seventh Empire, the fragmented continent, and the deadly seas that had doomed it. More than this, I think, the alien said. Yes, the boy said. I did a report last year, on my own, not for school, about the fossil record on Antelou. There were a lot of animals that wanted the same food you wanted, that your kind wanted. On Antelou, I mean. Yes, the alien thought. I ran across other things, too, the boy went on, and the alien heard the energy die again, heard in the boy's voice the suppressive feeling his kind called despair. The boy believed that the man named Ortega Mambe would still kill his sister, and so the boy despaired. Again, the boy hit the keyboard. A new diagram appeared. It was familiar, though the alien had not seen one like it, so clinical, detailed, and ornate, in half a lifetime. It was the Anteluan family cluster, and though the alien could not read them, he knew what the labels described. The kinship-obligation bonds and their respective motivational weights, the defense need parameters, and bond-loss consequences for identity and group membership. There was an inset, too, which gave... In animated three dimensional display, the survival model human exopsychologists believed could explain all Anteloan behavior. The boy hit the keyboard, and an iconographic list of the totemic bequeaths and kinship inheritances from ancient burial sites near Toloa and Mantok appeared. You thought you knew, the alien said, what an Anteloo feels. The boy kept his eyes on the floor. Yes. The alien did not speak for a moment, but when he did, it was to say, You were not wrong, Tuki Yatsun. The boy looked up, not understanding. Your sister will live, the Antelope said. The boy blinked, but did not believe it. What I say is true, the alien said. The alien watched as the boy's body began to straighten, as energy, no longer suppressed in despair, moved through it. It was done, the alien explained, without the killing, which neither you nor I could afford. They will let her live? Yes. You're sure? I do not lie about the work I do. The boy was staring at the alien. I will give you the money he said. No, the alien said. That will not be necessary. The boy stared for another moment, and then, strangely, began to move. The alien watched curiously. The boy was making himself step toward him, though why he would do this the alien did not know. It was a human custom, perhaps, a sentimentality, and the boy, though afraid, thought he must offer it. When the boy reached the alien, he put out an unsteady hand, touched the anteloo's shoulder lightly, once, twice, and then, remarkably, drew his hand down the alien's damaged arm. The alien was astonished. It was an antelooan gesture, this touch. This is no ordinary boy, the alien thought. It was not simply the boy's intelligence, however one might measure it, or his understanding of the antelope. It was something else, something the alien recognized, something any killer needs. The anteluan gesture the boy had used meant obligation to blood, though it lacked the slow unsheathing of the damor. The boy had chosen well. Thank you, the boy was saying, and the alien knew he had rehearsed both the touch and the words. It had filled the boy with great fear, the thought of it. But he had rehearsed until fear no longer ruled him. As the boy stepped back, shaking now and unable to stop it, he said, Do you have a family cluster still? I do not, the alien answered, not surprised by the question. The boy no longer surprised him. It was a decision made without regrets. Many Antelope have made it. My work prevents it. You understand. The boy nodded, a gesture which meant that he did. And then the boy said it. What is it like to kill? It was, the alien knew, the question the boy had most wanted to ask. There was excitement in the voice, but still no fear. When the alien answered, it was to say simply, It is both more and less than what one imagines it will be. The boy named Kim Tuki Yatsen stood in the doorway of the small room where he slept and schooled, and listened as the man spoke to his mother and father. The man never looked at his mother's swollen belly. He said simply, "'You have been granted an exception, family Tookie Yatsin. You have permission to proceed with the delivery of the unborn female. You will be receiving confirmation of a four-member family waiver within three work weeks.' All questions should be referred to Bupopcon, 7th District, at the net number on this card. When the man was gone, his mother cried in happiness, and his father held her. When the boy stepped up to them, they embraced him, too. There were three of them now, hugging, and soon there would be four. That was what mattered. His parents were good people. They had taken a chance for him, and he loved them. That mattered, too, he knew. That night he dreamed of her again. Her name would be Chiara. In the dream she looked a little like Cito's sister, two floors down, but also like his mother. Daughters should look like their mothers, shouldn't they? In his dream the four of them were hugging, and there were more rooms, and the rooms were bigger. When the boy was seventeen and his sister five, sharing a single room as well as siblings can, the trunk arrived from Roma, one of the war-scarred worlds of the Pleiades. Pressurized and dented, the small alloy container bore the custom stamps of four space locks had been opened at least seven times in its passage, and smelled It had been disinfected yes, the u s p u s carrier who delivered it explained it had been kept in quarantine for a year and had nearly not gotten through, given the circumstances. At first, the boy did not know what the carrier meant. The trunk held many things. The woman explained the small polished skull of a carnivore not from earth, a piece of space metal fused like the blossom of a flower, two rings of polished stone that tingled to the touch. An ancient device that the boy would later discover was a third-generation airless communicator used by the Garbettis, a coil made of animal hair and pitch, which he would learn was a rare musical instrument from Hagen-6, and many smaller things, among them the postcard of the Pacific fountain the boy had given the alien. Only later would the family receive official word of the 300,000 inters deposited in the boy's name on the neutral banking station of Hyverx, of the cash of specialized weapons few would understand that had been placed in perpetual care on Titan, also in his name, and of the off-world travel voucher purchased for the boy to use when he was old enough to use it. Though it read like no will ever written on earth, it was indeed a will one that the Antelou called a bequeathing cantation, that it had been recorded in a space-lock lobby shortly before the alien's violent death on a world called Glory did not diminish its legal authority. Although the boy tried to explain it to them, his parents did not understand, and before long it did not matter. The money bought them five rooms in the northeast sector of the city, a better job for his mother, better care for his father's autoimmunities more technical education for the boy, and all the food and clothes they needed. And for the time being, though only that, these things mattered more to him than Saturn's great moon and the marvelous weapons waiting patiently for him there. This story is dedicated for Harry Harrison, Master. And that was our story. I have to wonder, when parents say study hard and finish all your homework and you can be anything you want to be, is this what they meant? Our feedback this week is for Tim Pratt's alternate universe cinemaphile love story, Impossible Dreams. I believe this is the closest any Escape Pod episode has ever come to universal acclamation. There were so many people who said this was their favorite EP story that I can't even list you, but thank you all. Almost everyone who commented loved this piece. As Tech Noir said, a good story entertains you. A great story pulls on something inside you. Many people spoke of how the story related to their own passions, movies, or something else. Alistair talked about growing up on the Isle of Man and using movies as his escape during his adolescence. He said, Reading this was like reading the inside of my skull. Earl Newton, of the Stranger Things video podcast, said, The movies on the shelves made my heart explode. When I heard Magnificent Amberson's The Director's Cut, I actually shouted, What? There were, of course, a few criticisms. Joe Fitz had issues with the conveniently minor differences between universes, and felt that Ali's character was a bit of a cliché. Others, such as Ether Knight, thought it was a moderately nice feel-good piece, but disappointingly light in its concept and execution. And that's fair. But I am glad it connected so well with so many people. The quote of the week comes from RKG, who said... This is easily the best Escape Pod story since Ray Bradbury's Nightfall, or Larry Niven's Now Plus N, Now Minus N, from back in February. Escape Pod is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated, and is distributed on a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. All of the rights are reserved by our authors, who have easy access to alien assassins. For scarier stuff, try our horror podcast, Pseudopod, at pseudopod.org, and for collectible archive CDs of our past episodes, check out Poddisc at poddisc.com. If you enjoyed this episode, we hope you'll tell a friend, and if you can, consider donating via the PayPal link at our site. The money goes towards fulfilling our contracts with our authors, and did I mention their alien assassins? Our music is by permission of Daikaiju, and their not-so-secret cache of Sonic Weapons at daikaiju.org. That was our show for this week. We'll see you next week. Meanwhile, have fun.